and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray that you would quicken our hearts and minds as we grapple with such deep and intense words as we read in your word. We do pray, Father, that we would understand the just character and nature of this event. Help us, Father, to to grasp the depth of it and what it means and why we would hear of such things. We do pray that every one of us in this room, everyone who would hear this message, would walk away a bit wiser with a keener understanding of glorious and holy, such severe things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I uh, took a brief walk on the beach this uh, past week, and I came upon a bench, one of those big cement benches, and the bench had a name on it, a little plaque with a name, and the name uh, was an old friend of mine who I went to high school with. And the bench was a memorial, because he had just passed away a few months ago. And I was reading it and thinking about our friendship, and we'd known each other over 50 years. And as I was looking at that, I looked and I saw there was another bench right next to it, and I, there was a plaque on that bench, too, that I didn't realize was there. And as I read that plaque, it was another guy who I went to high school with, and that was dedicated to him. It was a pretty melancholy experience for me, I have to say. I think as a pastor, I probably spend more time in uh, cemeteries than... Sometimes when you mix those words up, seminary and cemetery, it's like a Freudian... Not that I'm a Freudian, but you understand. But I probably do spend more time in cemeteries than most people. And, uh, and as I walk through cemeteries and I read, you know, the headstones, it does give me pause, especially when I notice some of these markers where the person has been dead longer than they were alive. There was a time when churches, and there's places even to this, in, today, but not here so much in Southern California, where uh, churches were built around or within cemeteries. So you would walk through a cemetery to get to church as a very vivid reminder of the inevitability of your own existence. But I also think you'd walk through that cemetery to be reminded of those people with whom, brothers and sisters who have gone to be with the Lord, with whom you are about to worship. You, you are worshiping with those people. We have to keep in mind that the church militant, if you understand these terms, the church militant, that is the church that is still here, the church that is still fighting, and the church victorious, those who have gone to be 
in the favored presence of God is just one church. When we gather, we gather with them. We have come, Hebrews tells us, to that church. Well, we are now, at least at some level, disembarking from the disagreements and controversies in Revelation. I I know you're all going to miss all the arguments. I mean, it's a... There's general agreement, not, of course, entire agreement on these chapters, the end of chapter 20, chapters 21 and 22. These, uh, these kind of provide a picture of the full consummation of history into eternity. The uh, chapters 21 and 22 really tell us that beautiful, vivid picture of the new heaven and the new earth. And we will spend some time there. But the end of chapter 20, though, before we get to that glorified state, we have the final judgment. Judgment day, as it's called. Verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. I have to say, I think people live this life as if we will never have to give an account for our lives. I think it's a very natural thing that we do. We don't, we don't think about that day of, of, of reckoning. We take, we take our sins, the sins of our past, and we seek to, to bind them up to throw them in a pit, shut the pit, and put a seal on it. And if we wait long enough, we forget them. We forget the sins of our past. You know, as a a pastor of the same church for almost 33 years, I look around this room, and I know you all pretty well. I can easily be the most interesting person at the party. (laughs) But, you know, I, I value confidentiality, but there are times when people behave, I have to be honest, there are times when people behave in such a way in terms of their lack of patience for others that they forget their own sins. And there's part of me that wants to remind them of what I know about them in order for them to be a little more patient with somebody else. We just forget, right? We just get to that point where we think we're doing pretty well. Even David, a man after God's own heart, became so comfortable in his own sin. He, he so learned to live with his own sin. Maybe, maybe as is so popular today, he forgave himself. That when he heard, he was so comfortable with it, that when he heard a sort of parable of a man who did what he did, only what he did was worse he didn't recognize that the parable was about him. It took the prophet to say, you are the man, for David to be reminded of what he had done. We should ever, we should ever bear the fruit of repentance. We should ever seek restitution. We should ever seek reconciliation. It is not a very Christian thing to be 
at odds with others. We, we need to make things right. David should have made things right with what he had done with Uriah and Bathsheba, but he didn't. Just closeted it up and went on with his life. We are called as Christians to make things right. The Apostle Paul puts it this way, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. We, we should not live at odds with others to the extent that it's within our possibility. I mean, there are times, I mean, obviously assumed in this statement, is there's, there's times when it's impossible. But as far as it is possible, be at peace with all. Matter of fact, Paul pushes this pursuit of reconciliation to the point where we should, in some cases, be willing to, quote, suffer wrong in order for peace to be achieved. When he's talking about lawsuits within the church, and his argument is like, you know, take the hit. Really? Take the hit, you know, financially, if it means peace with your brother. There's a point where you're just going, all right, I'm I'm going to, to lose something here. And again, there's times when that's not possible, but there's times when it is possible. But the next question is, how does one make restitution? And you know what I mean by restitution. I mean, this idea that if you stole something from somebody, it's not enough to just say you're sorry. you got to pay them back, right? So, so reconciliation, repentance, restitution all involve some type of behavior on your part to make things right with the person that has been offended or if you've been offended. But the big question as we look at the passage this morning is, how does one make restitution with God? How does that happen? You can steal from me and pay me back, and I may very well say, hey, we're good. But, but David, keep this in mind, and get, this almost sounds confusing. David, when he was confronted, David, when he came to his senses, realized this that the most significant offended party of his infraction was not Bathsheba, and it wasn't even Uriah who he had killed. The most significant offended party in his infraction was God. We, We tend to not think that way. We read in Psalm 51, one of the most beautiful psalms in terms of forgiveness, Against you, David says, he's talking about God, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. He's talking there about what happened with Bathsheba and Uriah. That you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. David understood that God was just in his condemnation. There's not a problem with God and God's righteousness and God's justice. But the point I'm making here is that David is going... You are the one who's been offended. Now, let me just say, kind of parenthetically, one should not view this as David being dismissive of his sins against humans any more than when Jesus says, unless you hate your mother and your father, you can have nothing to do with me. Jesus isn't actually saying you should violate the commandments of God and hate your mother and father. That is not what Jesus is teaching. Jesus is teaching 
by comparison. Basically what he's saying there is, your love for the people you love the most should appear hate when compared to your love for me. And as, and as, and a, and as, as odd as that might sound, I guarantee you this, that if you are in a relationship with somebody who loves Christ more than they love you, they will love you more than they otherwise would love you if they didn't love Christ. I'm going to have to listen to that later to make sure I said that right. In our sins against one another, what we have to realize is we have a bigger problem. I was reading about this. I want to, you know, when I look at cross-references, I like to do a little homework. And I, I came across, you know, what John Calvin said about this uh, this statement that David made against thee and the only have I sinned. And I was reading it, and a lot of times what I'll do is I'll kind of like paraphrase or shorten it. I'll put it into my own words. But I have to say, as I was reading it, I was so ministered to by it. I thought, we'll just read it together because I just couldn't figure out a better way to say it. And it's not such antiquated language that we won't understand it. But here's what Calvin said about uh, David's statement about against thee and thee only have I sinned. He wrote this, but I conceive his meaning to be that though all the world should pardon him, he felt that God was the judge with whom he had to do, that conscience hailed him to his bar, and that the voice of man could administer no relief to him, however much he might be disposed to forgive or excuse or to flatter. I don't know if you've ever had this where somebody will say to you, hey, it's okay, it's okay. And it sounds good and it feels good, but what he's saying is, they may say it's okay, but that, that doesn't mean it is okay. He goes on, his eyes and his whole soul were directed to God, regardless of what man might think or say concerning him. To one who was thus overwhelmed with a sense of the dreadfulness of being obnoxious to the sentence of God, there needs no other accuser. See, what David realized in this sin was that he had a bigger problem than most people realize. It wasn't a problem with Bathsheba, and it wasn't a problem with those who loved Uriah. The real problem he had was with God. He had sinned against God. We see in this passage that we're looking at this morning a great white throne. This idea here of a great white throne, it indicates authoritative, pure, and righteous. That's what the throne indicates. We read in Acts 17.31, Because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world, in righteousness by the man, that's Christ, whom he has ordained, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So you have this great white throne, pure, authoritative, righteous. That earth and heaven are failing. You get the picture here? Heaven and earth, they're trying to run away, and there's just nowhere for them to go. This judgment 
is all-encompassing. The judgment is vast. It's vast in its width, and it's vast in its depth. It's a judgment of angels, and it's a judgment of all. It's a judgment of every thought, every word, every deed, every secret thing. So it is a judgment of everybody and everything about everybody. We may be able to make restitution with others. We may have the will and the stamina and the resources and the conviction to bring offended parties to a sense of peace and justice and solace knowing that things have been made right. I think that's a, I think that's a beautiful thing. I think when parties have been divided through some event and they come back together and because either one or both of them have done the right thing and they shake hands and the relationship continues, that's a very Christian thing. It's a good thing to do. In fact, I'm going to push it a little further if I may. A lack of willingness to forgive an offender I don't know how everybody is in this room, but a lack of willingness to forgive somebody who's offended you is casting you, my friend, into very troubled waters. We prayed it this morning. Forgive us our debts. How? As we forgive our debtors. What kind of kingdom do you want to live in? You want to live in a kingdom where there's no forgiveness? You're living in a kingdom where by the very statement of the Lord's Prayer, you're going, I'm going to live in a kingdom where I've been forgiven, I'm going to forgive others, I'm going to forgive others. I'm going to... That's just the way we operate here. And if you don't operate that way, the parable of the unforgiving servant has the most radical, drastic, and severe of conclusions, if you know that parable, where he's forgiven this massive debt, you know, and that is the debt we have before God. It's an unpayable debt. It's an eternal debt, but he won't forgive somebody else a minor debt. What happens to that person in that parable? They're they're going, all right, if that's the way you want to operate, pay me what you owe me, and you'll never pay it. No, it's a powerful thing to refuse to forgive. We need to get rid of that. You find the vestiges of that in your own heart? That's the thing. You should be on your knees praying that God will remove And this goes not only to individuals, but to churches as well. The church as a corporate body is called to forgive an offender. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 2.7, lest one be swallowed up in too much sorrow. What you have there is somebody who's been excommunicated. They've done bad. They've done evil. And then they're restored but the church is not entirely comfortable with them in their midst. I've experienced this. I think, in in theory, we all are very excited about the fact that Jesus surrounded himself with tax gatherers and sinners. We're all like, yeah, that's my Savior. But even within our own church, we have had people over the years who've committed infractions and repented of those infractions and sought to come back into the church only for me to hear other people say, if they come to this church, I'm leaving. And I remember one time thinking to myself, because, you know, sometimes this gets big. I mean, because we have congregational meetings and going, okay, what are we going to do? And I remember praying about this and thinking about this and go, I think 
My conclusion was, if our church ends up with just our session and that one offender and everybody leaves, everybody can leave. That's just the way it is. We just got a letter this last week of a person who's still in prison. They're about to get out. 20 years in prison. And they're kind of like, can I go to your church? You know, and the letter sounded very repentant, very sincere, very, this, you know, and it's like, you know, and I'm looking at it going, all right, you know, this person, and it seemed almost like there was a little bit of a form letter. It's like, they're trying to find some church that will allow them to go to their church. We, we say it in theory, but at the same time, there's part of us that's going, eh, I don't think so. And we need to recognize that this is what a church does. Church welcomes sinners. So you've got this idea that you and I are required to forgive one another, right? But forgiveness before God, keep in mind, we're talking about the great white throne judgment. We're not talking about you forgiving me and me forgiving you. Forgiveness before God is an entirely different matter. We forgive because we have been forgiven. I mean, that's kind of the way we love because we've been loved. We forgive because we have been forgiven. But God has not been forgiven. God's not going, I forgive because I've been forgiven. We forgive because we have been forgiven. And the Apostle Paul took that thinking of going, I have been forgiven. Therefore, I am in debt to forgive others. He viewed himself as a debtor. I've been forgiven by God. Therefore, I owe Everybody was Paul's argument in Romans 1.14. But it is a great mistake. And let me tell you, what I'm about to say is just weaved into our natures. It is a great mistake to think we can make God our debtor. I mean, Paul addresses that directly. That somehow, I can behave in such a manner with God that he owes me forgiveness is a critical error. And not only in our natures, but we see it addressed in Scripture. Because if we piled up all of our good works and put them in a bag and handed them to God, at very best, we are still unprofitable servants. I remember witnessing to an old buddy of mine, he was a pole vaulter, and... um, we were in college, and he's like, the problem I have, you know, with Christianity is if there was a guy out in the jungle somewhere who had never, ever, ever sinned, you guys would still say that he's going to hell. And I'm like, okay, you're creating a false scenario here. There's nobody out there who's never, ever, ever sinned. But the problem is... The thinking is that there are people, at least in my friend's mind, he was a smart guy, there are people in his mind who, in fact, can stand before God based upon their own merit and say, you are required to approve me, to allow me into your eternal kingdom by virtue of my behavior. Paul put it this way in terms of us making God our debtor. We sing it sometimes, or who has given a gift to him, to God, that he might be repaid? 
Let me just say, so we understand this clearly, and I don't know if this will sound negative, but if it does sound negative, you know, the good news isn't good news until you've heard the bad news. There's one thing that God really owes us according to his nature. The one, he, the one thing God actually owes us is judgment. In this next short passage, we're going to see books referred to, books that kind of tell the tale. And I just want to say that once a person dies, there's no editing those books. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one, according to his works. Truly, this is what the Bible calls the ultimate, great, and terrible day of the Lord. Nobody, living or dead, great or small, can escape that day. World leaders, superstars, great athletes, average Joes, the weak, the impoverished, they all fall into the same category. It is the great equalizer Books are opened. Now, I don't know that I think this is teaching that there's like a literal books there. You understand, though, the idea. There are various views regarding what these books are. Some, and I think there's merit to this. Some people say, well, one of the books is the book of the law, the law of God. We read that through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So I think at least theologically, It makes sense for one of the books to be the law of God. Another book seems to indicate that it's a ledger of our lives, our works. It's like our ledger of indictment, our ledger of debt. So the law of God has opened my life. You know, this is your life, Pastor Paul, has opened. And we kind of put those two things together, and it's not working out well for me. There is a debt, and this debt is undeniable, and it's unpayable. The law, which you have to keep in mind, the law is an extension of the very character and nature of God. So when the law speaks, God speaks, and the law has spoken. Paul put it this way, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, Let me stop just for a second with that phrase, under the law, just so we understand the difference between under grace and under the law. Under grace does not mean that we no longer seek to obey the law. Under the law or under grace means that we are either under a covenant of law or a covenant of grace. In other words, under the law means that I will be judged by virtue of my ability to keep the law. Under grace means that I will be judged based upon Jesus' ability to keep the law. And one is way better than the other. So he's saying if you are still under the law, if you still want to be judged, as we read in the passage, according to your works, that every mouth may be what? Stopped. 
and all the world become guilty before God. There's no special pleading, no appealing to extenuating circumstances, no appealing to mitigating circumstances. There's no blaming of other people, blaming of the way you were raised, blaming your parents, blaming your spouse, blaming the government. There's no blaming of anything. We stand guilty before God. That same psalm that I just read from David, we learn that at conception we are guilty. We are conceived in sin. We are part of a fallen race. And that doesn't dismiss us because not only are we guilty by virtue of being part of a falling race, we are guilty by virtue of our own sin as well. The prosecutor's case on this great white throne judgment is sure and it's true and everybody knows it. There's not going to be, you know, any sound bites that are going to get you off it. You're not going to be able to spin this in such a way that on, you know, some news show, you're going to sound as if it wasn't your fault. There is one hope, and one hope only. Let's recall here the theme in Revelation, right? We, We kind of go over it from time to time because it's important, I think, for us to recognize the original readers and what this meant to them. The theme is the overcoming of evil by Christ. Christ overcomes evil. And the theme we see recurring is the call to persevere, the call to overcome. So we've never, we don't ever leave that. They're, they're, you're, you're, these readers and, uh, and us with them are being presented, you know, false religion by which they were surrounded, tyrannical, despotic government by which they were oppressed, temptations, the, the, the thorns, right? The, the, the shallow ground by which they were all surrounded. They were tempted to walk away from the faith, called to persevere, called to overcome. Those seven churches were surrounded by deceit. They were surrounded by persecution. I would say we are surrounded by deceit. I don't think what's going on in the Western church merits the idea that we're being persecuted just yet, but one follows the other. I guess my question for you is, if things get hot, will you persevere? Will you be the one, if it's, you know what, if, if I and I alone, I'm, I'm ready, do, do I need the tide of public opinion to be on my side? It is on this day, judgment day, that it will be painfully manifested that the lies and the power of the world, regardless of their veneer of beauty, regardless of their veneer of wisdom and sophistication, will have no power to deliver. It's going to be very obvious on this day that what you trusted in either did or did not deliver. Jesus had taught earlier in Revelation 3, 5, and 6, the one who conquers, this idea of overcoming, overcoming, persevering, the one who conquers will be clothed, clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name, and here we see it again, 
out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The only hope on that day is that your name is written in the book of life. So let me ask you this. How do you know if your name is written in the book of life? How do you know that it is true of you? How do you, how do you have the assurance of going, yes, I'm included in that number? How do you know that Jesus will, in fact, confess your name before the Father? Maybe I can ask it another way. How is one declared fit for heaven? You know, it's been said, heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people. How do you know if you're prepared for heaven? What we're going to see in the next two chapters is that only the righteous will be in heaven. How does that include you? How does that include me? I mean, I'm very uncomfortable when, you know, when somebody ever says to me, you know, oh, you know, he's a righteous, unless by righteous they mean cool, (laughs) one of the righteous brothers or something. Righteous brothers were so cool. But I, you know, I get uncomfortable with that because I'm, I know me. You know, people, oh, man of God, all this stuff. I'm like, <laughs> you know, just there's a discomfort I think we all naturally have with this idea that we are righteous. But heaven will only have righteous people in it. The book of life contains those who are righteous. How, how do you know that's you? What is the means by which we are declared righteous before a holy God? How does that happen? Friends, can there be anything in the whole domain of human existence that is a more pressing or critical question to ask than what must I do to be saved? It might do us well to take a moment to express what it's not. Just a little bit of this. Because it just it's weaved into us. It is not your or my good works, religious or otherwise. Galatians 2.16, Paul writes, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Well, We're getting to the answer there, aren't we? Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Now, we were talking about the word righteous, by the way. That word justified and the word righteous are the same word. This idea of being righteous in the eyes of God. Historically, the Reformed faith views that word very forensically. This is declared righteous, this idea of being acquitted before God. The gavel goes down and we are declared not guilty, not by virtue of the goodness within us, but by virtue of Christ himself. 
How are we justified? It is not by anything we do, anything we say, any behavior, whether it's religious or otherwise. And you might be asking, well, why are you saying religious or otherwise? Because some people will argue that Paul here is only talking about Jewish ceremonial laws, kosher laws, circumcision, Sabbath keeping, and so forth. They're like, no, no, that's what he's talking about. But there's a, a life well-lived that's going to be taken into account on that judgment day. It's based upon, I think, a, a misunderstanding of Matthew 25. But we have to understand this. From cover to cover, from the time Adam and Eve tried to cover their own sin with fig leaves, a recurring theme in the Bible is that man is incapable of appeasing the wrath of God in our entirety, in our totality. There there is nothing about you or me, morally, religiously, or otherwise, where God is impressed enough to go, come in. You've made it. We're also not declared, and you'll hear in this church, you know, I know people struggle in our church when we fence the table at communion. They don't, most people don't struggle when we talk about, do you believe? Most people don't struggle even when we say, are you baptized? But when we say, are you a member of a church? That, that's hard because we have a very deflated view of the value of the church in our culture. The church is very incidental. It's not really all that critical. Church membership is, most churches don't even have it. And I don't think, I don't see how they can obey the commands of Scripture in terms of the relationship with elders and members without some form of church membership. And so I realize it's a struggle for people. But I will say this, that we are not declared righteous by virtue of our membership in a religious community. Do I think we should be in a religious community? And by religious community, I'm talking about a local church. Absolutely. I think it is defiant rebellion. I think it's extremely unhealthy and weakening to exclude oneself from the covenant community as expressed by local churches. I think it's a sign of the impotent nature of current Western evangelicalism that churches don't have defined relationships with their members. I mean, think about the Belgian Confession, that the, the, the marks of a true church, there are three of them, the preaching of the word, the right proper administration of the sacraments. You know what the third one is? Church discipline when necessary. Now, I, you know, I'm not saying this to somebody who enjoys church discipline, because I don't. But if church discipline, this idea that it is possible for a person in a church to actually be disciplined, maybe even excommunicated, if that is a mark of a true church, then most of the churches in Western evangelicalism aren't true churches, because that just doesn't happen. It's viewed as unloving and unkind, when in fact it's just the opposite. It's the means by which people are restored. It's the means by which the purity of the church is kept and so forth. But all that to say, your membership in a church does not declare you righteous before a holy God. Mere membership is insufficient. The new covenant in the Bible is replete with baptized members of Christian churches who were later declared shipwrecked in their faith. So the idea that you, in fact, have eternal life by virtue of the fact that you are a member in good standing of a Christian church 
doesn't follow if we're reading our Bibles. Plenty of people were members in good standing of a Christian church, and later it was made manifest that they were not of us. As a matter of fact, John says, and they never were, even though they appeared to be. Also, participation in the sacraments, as important as that is, will not bring a person peace with God. It may aid in the peace of God, but it's not going to give you peace with God. You understand the difference. Directly after his baptism, directly after his baptism, Simon was warned that his heart revealed that his soul may perish. I mean, he was baptized, and it seems like a few minutes later, he's like, hey, may your money perish with you. Paul was not unclear that it is very possible for people to take the Lord's Supper in such a way as to drink judgment to themselves. So the mere taking of the Lord's Supper, apart from faith, is actually negative. It's not neutral. Also, it is not your faithfulness that gives you peace with God. Not even faithfulness in the true religion. Should we be faithful? You understand the difference between faith and faithful? Should we be faithful? Absolutely. There is a massively popular current theologian who is working at least tangentially with the Reformed community, He's actually Church of England. His name is N.T. Wright. And he is swimming in these waters, conflating, as it were, faith and faithfulness, if you read him. And he publishes a book about every 20 minutes. I mean, and I want to be cautious here. And if you, you know me, if you've listened to me, I tend to be careful about naming people out. I mean, N.T. Wright is like one of those little rabbits at a shooting gallery at an amusement park. You know, it's going along, and you're kind of going, well, maybe I'll, that's a rabbit. And then it kind of disappears, and you come back up, and it's a shrew. You're like, oh, but then by the time you pull the trigger, it's a rabbit again. And you're like going, all this to say, he's kind of a moving target. The things he says change from kind of year to year. But he's involved in this thing called the new perspective on Paul, and I do feel the responsibility. Just so, I mean, I hope, appreciate this for what it is. As I'm a pastor of a local church, and I feel a responsibility when there are certain people who become so popular that I can know that their brand of theology is making inroads into the church in general. You know, I remember years ago, I had to do a thing on the prayer of Jabez because... The prayer of Jabez was kind of like this big deal. And I'm like, okay, what is this? And I'd, I have to say I didn't have a positive review. Um, purpose-driven life, not as bad as the prayer of Jabez, but I did a review on that because I'm like, when people kind of are into this, you know, wh- whether it's, you know, th- those or somebody like Joel Osteen, who's very popular, very influential, I feel like I have a responsibility as a pastor to address things that are wafting through our culture that may be influential to our particular church. And the new perspective on Paul and N.T. Wright is definitely one of those. He's probably the most popular published theologian today. 
So I, I want to be a little bit careful in the way I say this, because I'm not a one-man, you know, a, a defenestration of anti-right. You know, I don't want to just individually do this. But when R.C. Sproul, who I think, you know, was a very sound theologian in the 20th century, moving into the 21st century, was asked about Wright's doctrine of imputation, and that is that the righteousness of Christ, the act of obedience of Christ, is imputed to us, that it is credited to, credited to our account, that Jesus doesn't merely get rid of our sin. He doesn't just take our sin. He gives us his righteousness. When Sproul was asked about Wright's view on that, that by faith, by faith alone, that act of obedience is given to us, Sproul's answer was, it destroys sola fide, that is, that we're saved by faith alone. It destroys it, and then he said, and the gospel with it. And then the follow-up question was, do you think the view is heretical? And Sproul's answer was, if it isn't, there's no such thing as heresy. Now, again, that, I'm saying that in terms of that one doctrine, not the totality of this person's ministry. We need to be aware of the fact that when you are beginning to conflate and mess around with justification by grace through faith alone, that's very, those are very dangerous waters for people to be in. Martin Luther taught this. Justification by faith alone is the foundation on which the church stands or falls. Should we seek to be faithful? Most certainly. But let me just say it this way as we're talking about Judgment Day. On this great and terrible day of judgment, my faithfulness is not going to be in one of those books. Nor would I want it to be. If, If my faithfulness is one of those books, it's one of the books where I'm judged according to my works. My my faithfulness is not going to be in the book of life. The Christian faith, like, don't get me wrong, I want everybody in this room to do great. I want you all to be great husbands and fathers and wives and mothers and citizens. I mean, I'd like us to be the all-stars. I'm rooting for all of us to do well, to excel still more, right, as Paul writes. But the Christian faith is tailor-made for the sick and sinful. It was in the height of his ministry, the height of his maturity, that the Apostle Paul said, I'm a wretched sinner. The more his eyes were open, the more he realized how wretched he was. The glorious words of Matthew, quoting Isaiah, teaches us this, a bruised reed He will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Let me tell you, however much we have ever felt the smothering nature of our own feebleness, how much more on that day of judgment? Any time in your life going, wow, you know, I am pretty wretched. On the day of judgment, that's going to be accelerated to a whole new degree. There's something else I would really like us to have as a church. Oh, how very hungry we would be for the Lord's Supper if our eyes were opened this moment 
to our bruised and smoldering condition. Just can't wait for the Lord's Supper. How clear, how clear we are saved by faith alone. Finally, we read of the destruction of that final enemy. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. I've told you before that when it comes to heaven and when it comes to hell, I feel like I lack the poetic skills to convey either the joy of one or the agony of the other, this idea of a lake of fire. I don't know if there's a real lake, but you have to know this, that if, in fact, he's using the idea of a lake of fire, the reality may is probably worse. And we should not be comfortable with the idea of the ones we love going there. We, we should live our lives in such a way as to recognize that we are called by God to blow the trumpet of warning lest other people perish. It's a real thing, and we should not grow comfortable with the idea that, well, whatever happens, happens. It is central to the faith. Years ago, I, I think I was a, actually a youth pastor at the time, so it was probably over 35 years ago. I was at a conference, and there was a young pastor up there who had young children, and he said something that at first I found kind of bizarre, almost kind of, not, not cryptic, but it sounded a bit dark the way he said it. But these many years later, I remember it very vividly, and I think it is very profound. I don't know, he had two or three little ones. And his comment was, the first thing that he wants his children to learn is how to die. Because it is not until they learn how to die that they'll actually know how to live. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that this day of judgment, which will be glorious to you, glorious, Father, in your grace toward those you've, you've saved, and glorious to your justice, Father, in those whom you condemn. We do pray, Father, that we would recognize why this was would be placed before our eyes to examine that we might, Father, have that requisite fear, a good, healthy, true fear of the living God, that we might ever persevere, that we might ever, Father, recognize that we need the blood of Christ, his broken body and his shed blood, his victory over sin and death, that we might rejoice in the fact that this last enemy Death, in fact, will be destroyed, that there will be no mercy for death itself. We pray, Father, that we would read these things in such a way as to ever call upon your name. We pray in his name. Amen.